Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe All Show podcast. Today on the pod, with over 150 propane tanks removed from Vanier Park, City Hall finally gets tough with squatters. Does this mean residents will finally get their park back? Plus, from blistering heat to wildfires to extreme weather events, what have we learned from a summer of climate change? And cry freedom fed up with paying their taxes and getting nothing in return. Residents have had enough. Welcome to the Independent Citizens Republic of Point Roberts. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Well, it was Benjamin Franklin who once said, in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Now, clearly the city of Vancouver takes the tax part of that phrase very seriously. Now, you may recall last year, uh, the city inflicted, or sorry, for 2023, the city inflicted a 10.7% property tax increase on the citizens of Vancouver. We often talk about getting back to basics, tightening the belt, uh, making sure the city understands what its core, uh, core, uh, you know, what it needs to be doing for citizens, its core uh, business at the end of the day. Many have felt that the city has gone beyond that, talking about bigger picture issues when it shouldn't be doing so. Uh, One of the things that we talked about on this city is, well, the basics being potholes, community centres, garbage pickup, all those types of things that City Hall should be focusing on. Well, a new report from the City of Vancouver's Director of Finance has recommended a new source of potential revenue. Now, the city is going through its budget consultation uh, for the 2024 budget. In a report that is dated today, uh, it presented to City Hall a summary of how the city can generate, get this, $15 million in new revenue for the 2024 budget. Now, keep in mind, the City Hall budget is $1.97 billion, or just under $2 billion. So they want to raise a few more dollars, they say, because they don't want to raise property tax increases. Well, I've gone through this report. It's a very short one, but it you know gives new meaning to nickel and diming taxpayers. And I want you to listen to this. Here are the tax increases being recommended for 2024. This just uh, came to me a couple of hours ago as it was sent uh, and has just been presented today to City Hall. Here's the, here are the tax increases they're talking about. Standard business license fee increases from $171 to $250. That would generate alone $1.6 million in incremental revenue, according to the uh, staff at City Hall. They have also said trades and contractors licensing fee increase from $171 will go up to $207, sorry, to $340, $340. And there's a short-term rental business license fee increase, which presently ranges anywhere from $109 uh, or so. It'll now be increased to $450. That's a million dollars in incremental revenue, new revenue for the city. They've also uh, said that the total amount that they can raise uh, because of these fees on uh, businesses including short-term rentals as well, is about $5 million. Uh, as well, there's also an increase of on on-street parking, and they say that will also generate more dollars. They haven't said specifically uh, exactly where that expansion of metered on-street parking would occur, but they are certainly recommending an expansion of metered on-street parking. Then there, of course, uh, is the conversation about residential parking permit fees. Now, presently, the city's residential parking permit Permit fee is the price below market levels, according to staff, ranging from $52 to $104 annually. Staff are recommending an increase of $65 to $131 annually. That would generate about $200,000. Right now, they don't have a, a strategy in regards to 
parking uh, around Vancouver parks, but the park board is developing a strategy for parking within parks, and that they believe could generate an incremental revenue increase of five hundred thousand dollars now does it stop there no guess what ride hailing fees currently it's about 30 cents a fee uh, for uh, uh, hailing uh, a ride uh, through the various ride hailing companies they want to increase that to 45 cents uh, per ride in 2024 and 60 cents per uh, ride in 2025 by 2025 that could raise an incremental increase of three million dollars now does it end there sorry folks it doesn't commercial vehicle decal program that they have which provides of course curbside access for deliveries goods and services of course for our economy now that generally uh, goes anywhere from 27 to 43 dollars every year that's being increased to 50 to 150 dollars another million dollars in new revenue Uh, and does it end there sorry folks it doesn't there's also an increase of liveaboards yes liveaboards uh, a 10.7 percent increase Now, the city also issues 23,000 dog licenses every single year, and they charge $49. They're now recommending a $12 increase to the dog license uh, as well. Add to that two new adoption fees of $300 for exotic birds and $100 for other animals as well. And gas stations uh, licensing fee will go from $255 to $340. Now, it is truly amazing to me, uh, within this document, beyond all these increases that I've gone through, and there's many others, these are just some of the highlights here. In the uh, document, it says, get this, quote, through prior years of public engagement, residents and businesses have expressed preferences for new or increased user fees for city services to balance the budget where possible rather than increase property taxes. As part of the 2023 Budget Approval Council provided direction to staff to report back to council on options to increase fees in a number of areas, including business licensing fees, dog licensing fees, food truck licensing fees, permit parking fees, and on-street parking. Now, I understand that this is part of the consultation uh, process that we have to go through, and these are recommendations. Uh, This will generate about $15 million if approved. But here's my question. In a budget with $1.9 billion, $1.97 billion, that we cannot find savings, we cannot find any savings, and that the city has to start looking for new sources of revenue. The present ABC Council, in my opinion, was not elected to increase taxes, but it was asked to find savings within City Hall and its budget, and it hasn't done so. A 10.7% property tax increase is shocking enough, folks, uh, particularly uh, after COVID. And I understand their challenges with COVID. But then to come back the following year and say, let's increase fees. And this assertion that people prefer a fee increase rather than a property tax increase is ridiculous. They don't want any increase. There should be some attempt by government to cut costs somewhere in a budget of $2 billion. Maybe I have it wrong here, folks, but I just do not understand why we're seeing a significant increase in fees from uh, licensing for small businesses, who are, of course, having a tough time already, short-term rentals, on-street parking. I mean, look at this commercial vehicle decal program, ride-hailing fees, even to have a dog license in this city. A $12 increase for dog licenses, $300 for exotic birds, even gas stations have to pay more. 
we are in the midst of a livability crisis. We are in the midst of an affordability crisis. And the city does not seem to recognize that in this document that was released to council today. Now, they are recommendations. But I don't understand why we're at this point that the city is so tone deaf that they think this is the direction we need to go. Well, this weekend, there's going to be a lot of fun things going on uh, over uh, in Chinatown. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, a new uh, event for the city, Light Up Chinatown, is Carrie Leung. She's a director of events and partnerships for the Vancouver Chinatown Foundation. Carrie, thank you for joining us. Hi. Hi. Well, walk me through, what can we expect Mm -hmm. to see uh, this weekend in Chinatown? Well, we're going to light up Chinatown. We have some colorful lanterns. Um, There will be our festival site, which is on Columbia Street between Kiefer and East Pender. Mm -hmm. There'll be a fun zone um, with magic shows and cotton candy and lantern making, as well as we will have um, food trucks, live performances on our main stage, games, and uh, for the first time, a licensed bar. Oh wow! So it's 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 over two days then. It is over two days. Saturday, this Saturday, um, between eleven and nine p.m., mm-hmm. and then Sunday, um, eleven to six. To six p.m. Uh, so it's a free two-day outdoor festival. Uh, why do you think Chinatown needs a festival like this at this moment? You know, small businesses are the backbone of Chinatown's culture and community. And really the goal of Light Up Chinatown is to support our local businesses. So while we do have this outdoor festival, our goal really is to have people explore Chinatown as a neighborhood. We have um, special uh, promotions going on that the local merchants have put on only for this weekend. Mm -hmm. And if people um, get these stamps at these local promo- at the local um, businesses, uh, they can win prizes, and it, they don't have to purchase anything. But we encourage people to go and explore the neighborhood, um, go into the businesses, and hopefully they will buy something. But um, it's also to win big prizes. We have concert tickets that we're giving away um, for Beyonce's concert and Coldplay as well as we have some other great prizes from Arteryx and Aritzia. So we're very excited. Yeah, you also got uh, Connect tickets, uh, PNE's uh, Fright yeah. Night uh, tickets as well. So, And like you said, uh, Beyonce and Coldplay as well, two great acts as well. Um, give me a sense, uh, are you seeing changes in Chinatown after uh, you know Ken Sim and his party were elected? They promised to make changes. Or are you starting to see some positive things in Chinatown? Yes, we are. You know... Um, The more um, exposure that we have and the more people that come down and and support uh, Vancouver's iconic Chinatown, you know, it has a long history in the city and we really want people to come down and create some vibrancy and foot traffic for the businesses. Mm -hmm. I've always been curious, uh, you know, it it is, as you say, an iconic part of the city. At the same time, uh, you know, the Chinese community itself, and they're not the only ones who go to Chinatown, of course, but uh, the Chinese community itself also has a tremendous competition, tremendous amount of opportunity to shop in many other places. I think of some of the the, the shopping malls of Richmond. Uh, And how much do you think that impacts Chinatown's ability to, to, to compete to a certain degree? 
because uh, in many cases, some of us are shopping in shopping malls uh, and prefer that. Do you think that the pull of some other shopping areas, with particularly in competition with Chinatown, impacts its ability uh, in regards to attracting more people? Well, I think, you know, um, Chinatown has had economic decline for many years, and then it was exasperated by um, the pandemic. However, you know, downtown Vancouver is going through a lot of different changes with um, foot traffic and vibrancy. But there are a lot of people that live in the downtown area, and um, they can support all the different neighborhoods. And um, Chinatown has a lot of different hidden gems. And they have that historical, um, cultural history that I think is very unique to the city that other areas do not have. Mm -hmm. And once again, uh, the Light Up Chinatown uh, Outdoor Festival is on September 9th and 10th. And uh, it's Saturday, as you said, it is uh, goes from 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. And on Sunday, uh, 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. Thank you so much for your time today, Gary. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The summer of 2023 was by far the hottest ever recorded globally, according to the European Union Copernicus Climate Change Service. Copernicus is a division of the European Union Space Program, and it has records going back to 1940 uh, in regards to climate change. But in the UK and the United States, global records go back uh, to the mid-1800s. The report says the temperature on Earth was on average 16.7 degrees in the months of June, July and August. What's that mean? Well, the past three months have been the warmest in approximately 120,000 years, so effectively in human history. August 2023 was the warmest August on record globally and warmer than all other months except for July of 2023. Heat waves are experienced in multiple regions of the Northern Hemisphere, including Southern Europe, the Southern US and Japan. Well above average temperatures occurred over Australia, several South American countries and around much of Antarctica. Locally, of course, we saw a very busy wildfire season again. Joining us now to discuss to uh, discuss the Copernicus Report is Andrew Weaver, professor in the School of Earth and Ocean Sciences at the University of Victoria and, of course, the former leader of the BC Green Party. Andrew, thank you for joining us today. Oh, pleasure, Giles. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, lots to talk about. Um, what do you take from this summer locally and globally? Globally, it was a uh, um, quite, quite significant uh, series of very extreme events. You know, we have not just confined to the uh, record-setting wildfire seasons in British Columbia and Canada as a whole, but when you go to Europe, you start to see that uh, Greece was absolutely hammered with wildfire, and now it's getting hammered with floods as a heat dome uh, centers across the central Europe. And corresponding with that, you get the rain rains downstream, and that's what they're getting in, uh, in, in Greece. We had you know, wildfires in Europe as well. I mean, it, it's, it's been everywhere you look. Antarctica just beyond shattered, like five standard deviations beyond normal um, sea ice minimum. And we, you know, we can expect more of the same uh, in Australia as they start to head to their summer. We'll be reading newspaper stories about Australia's wildfires and, and responses. We continue to, to warm year after year. Um, and uh, so that, that's my, you know, the take home is this is what we've been saying we should expect as a climate science community for many decades. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's no surprise what happened to those in the climate science community. The surprise ultimately amongst climate scientists like me is that people are surprised because mm-hmm. we're not surprised. I know there's still these, you know, curmudgeons will come out of the, out of the, the, the dust and start talking, you know, uh, natural variability and nonsense like that. But we've known for a very long time that this is what we should come to 
we have been more of in the future. We we've been discussing the issue of a one point five percent degree Celsius increase. Yeah. Uh, that number is not possible to limit limit the increase to one point five degrees now. No, it's it's it's. I mean, it, there's so much there's so much um, hopeful misinformation out there. You know, the whole one point five. We've already warmed to one point one degrees. You know, if we were to immediately stop combusting all fossil fuels everywhere in the world tomorrow, we'd warm by about half a degree because what would happen is the cooling effects of those aerosols that also result as a function of uh, carbon dioxide, I mean, uh, uh, fossil fuel combustion, these are the little smoky dust particles that create smog and things like that, they'll rain out. And that means that we feel the full effects of the carbon dioxide, which is uh, we, ha- we haven't actually felt because of the cooling effect of these other agents. So we know we've warmed by 1.6. We know we're going to have a permafrost carbon feedback that'll add another 0.1 or 0.2. So we're at 1.7, you know, 1.8 degree guaranteed warming. And that's assuming we, we get on with it now. So, so we're not going to keep below two degrees you know, when I, you just mentioned that the average world temperature in August was 16 to something degrees. Well, when I started in this business, the average temperature we would we would try to to replicate in our climate model was 14 degrees, right? So that's two degrees lower than where we are wow. at least in this August. So, I mean, it's it, it it really is a very serious issue, and and the cognitive dissonance in broader society is quite stunning. You know, for me to be able to 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 to, to watch people continue to not take this as serious as they need to, at the same time as, uh, you know, you're just continuing on with more of the same. Well, I look at BC, this nonsense about somehow we're going to save China from themselves with LNG is in essence us saying that we are not really going to care about this climate problem because we're going to keep trying to produce um, carbon products that will continue to be combusted and put carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, mm-hmm. which will lead to more and more of the same down the road in much greater amounts. Let me ask you, I'm gonna, I want to focus on a couple of local po- uh, policies. Uh, I mean, you, you, I think we've done a good job encapsulating the challenges globally, but let's talk about yeah. something local because people can relate to it. Two things. Number one, Nanaimo is uh, another community that uh, has now moved forward to say we're going to ban uh, the use of natural gas for new construction for primary heating. Uh, there, and it was a 5-4 vote, very contentious, uh, and it follows the lead of Victoria, Saanich, and uh, State of New York, and many others. Metro Vancouver is headed in that direction. The City of Richmond's already proposed it to the Metro Vancouver Board. Uh, a very uh, vigorous and contentious conversation there as well. Not yet implemented, but could potentially be. Uh, is this the right way to go? Because in this show, we have had potential. Lots of uh, pushback on me yesterday and others who have talked about this. Your thoughts, do you think this is the right way to go in regards to natural gas? This is great public policy, in my view. Hats off to the city of Nanaimo for doing this. What they're not saying is that you have to tear down your house and and immediately get rid of natural gas. What they're saying is a new construction. Mm -hmm. We're not going to allow for natural gas to be a primary source of heating. What they're saying in that is that we understand that climate change is a very, very serious issue. And we understand that we need to be part of the solution. And so what we're going to do is be part of that solution. And it's not as if you can't find costly uh, sort of cost-effective alternatives. You know, instead of putting in natural gas heating, put in a heat pump heating system. We don't have to worry about minus 30 to 40 degree temperatures like they might have to worry in the Arctic. These are very efficient systems here, and they operate cheaply, and they give you the co-benefit of cooling in the summer. Mm -hmm. So they're also not saying you have to no longer have natural gas for your your, uh, uh, on-demand hot water, or they mentioned primary heating. And, And that's a good 
step forward. I mean, that's the way we advance good public policy. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I kudos to them. And there's, there's lots of examples like this. You know, we, we subsidize and have subsidized and continue to subsidize the fossil fuel sector year after year to the tune of billions in tax credit. And, you know, enough is enough. Uh, we, we're, we need to start decarbonizing our energy systems. Mm-hmm. And, okay, there are those in society who say, I don't care about the future, I'm just living here and now. And that's a legitimate public uh, stakeholder response. But the overwhelming majority of our science actually believe that we do owe something, sorry, overwhelming majority of our, of our um, society actually believe that we do owe future generations the same quality of the environment that we inherited from our forefathers and foremothers, mm-hmm. and that it behooves us to act now and not, like, set the dumpster fire today that they're going to have to deal with down the road. So, mm-hmm. so most people want governments to do something. Uh, public opinion poll after public opinion poll shows 80% of people wanting this, but sadly is the dysfunctional political rhetoric actually does not actually let us debate these things, that we end up always voting on health, economy, and jobs, right? Because that's what's affecting people today. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, even in Canada, I just I shake my head when I see the polling and see Mr. Polyev and his party, who are, in essence, the home of the conspiracy theorists and deniers of climate change, have no public policy in that regard, want to remove one of the most effective pieces of public policy, the carbon tax, which, as you know, in British Columbia was brought in by a right-wing government because it's actually a good economic instrument. I mean, this is the kind of knee-jerk populism that we have to call out because that's what it is. It's not good public policy. It's knee-jerk populism trying to get uh, in a quest for power, not a quest for good public policy. So let's touch on that just for a moment. I get a lot of calls on this show, uh, and sometimes Mr. Polyev has been on to it. I've gone at it on this issue as well, uh, and from the public as well. And some have said, look, the carbon tax isn't changing the public's mood, isn't changing behavior. Others have said, it, you know, if you can make it revenue neutral and show people that that that, that, that it is revenue neutral, you, you can move forward with it. In your mind, carbon tax still works because the price of carbon can change behavior? Yeah, that, that's actually not true, what people are saying. It's, it's demonstrably untrue. And if people actually, I would encourage each person who phones in and gives you that concern mm-hmm. to actually ask the following question. How much do I receive as a GST or carbon tax rebate every year? The overwhelming majority of Canadians who will actually get more money in their pocket from the refunds, the dividends associated with carbon pricing, then they actually have to pay out during the course of the year. Where, what the carbon tax is doing is it's, it's, it's actually a, a very soft instrument. It's saying to people, we're not going to ban this, but if you want to continue to pollute, you're going to have to pay. It's the polluter pay model. And we're going to send a signal to the market to give the market price certainty as to the direction society has to head, which is that this price will continue to go up. Look to BC as an example at our electric vehicle adoption. Look to California as well. We have got remarkable shifts. You have more money left in your pocket to spend on cleaner ways. Look at our massive shift towards heat pumps in BC. This is actually having a very real effect. And so to to suggest otherwise is, is essentially to suggest, you know, essentially it's another form of denial. And, and and that is, you know, that is basically what's going on. I'm looking out at what's going on in eastern Canada, 
again, you know, conservative rhetoric. They've never put a piece of climate policy on the table since Brian Mulroney, who was actually quite a leader in this regard. They're basically a collective of oil and gas apologists and, and, and um, climate deniers, as far as I can tell, in their government since Mr. Harper took over. Yeah. Andrew, and, Andrew uh, I'm going to yeah. cut you off right there. Don't go. Uh, can you take a couple oh, of calls from our, from our audience yeah, on this? If you're just joining us, we're speaking to Andrew Weaver, professor in the School of Earth and Ocean Sciences at the University of Victoria. We're just talking about climate change, and particularly this summer, what we've seen here locally uh, and globally. And, of course, we talked a little bit about uh, carbon tax. Is it still... Uh, effective uh, as a means of uh, changing behavior and, of course, uh, uh, the issue of banning natural gas as a primary heating source uh, in communities like Nanaimo. Let's go to the open line. Let's go to Paul and Burnaby. Hi, Paul. Yeah, uh, hi, hi, guys. Um, uh, Dr. Weaver, I'm in reality right now. I'm making pizzas, and they're going to go into an oven that's uh, fueled by gas and then and gas vehicles. Right. I mean, there's no other alternative, and yet I'm being taxed on this uh, climate change tax and yet I, the government hasn't given me an alternative. And, and, and on top of that, I, when I'm on the road, a Tesla goes by, which is subsidized by the government, and it pays no GST, no PSC, none of the fuel taxes, no uh, transit tax, nothing. So here we are stuck in the middle of nowhere. And we got Thank God Burnaby hasn't lost his mind yet. But we got municipal government coming after us, provincial government, federal government, and, and you, there's no alternative. This is the thing I get. I would love to, oh, by the way, BC Hydro did an audit and said, we don't get any more power. We're already at three, uh, 400 amps, and they can't give us any more power, so I can't even upgrade my equipment to electric ovens, even if I wanted to. Okay, That's Paul. Barely, uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks for your, thank your question. Andrew, what do you, what do you say to that? I mean, Paul's, uh, uh, you know, very uh, uh, not happy with what's been going on here. Yeah, I mean... This is what uh, the purpose of the carbon tax is to add a price to carbon if you want to continue using it. Paul could actually eliminate his carbon tax immediately, 100%, by picking up the phone, phoning Terra, uh, Fortis and saying, or going online and saying, I'd like to get renewable natural gas. And Fortis will re- are required to put natural gas that's coming from renewable sources into the stream. That's what I did. Right? So you, can, you can still get renewable natural gas. It's about turning over capital stock with time. That is the critical aspect of the carbon pricing is that we have to convert all, I mean, we won't be able to actually maintain our urban civilizations with rural food production if we don't deal with it, because we'll have a complete collapse of our supply chains because of climate change problems. Like the question I would say to people like Paul is it's, it's too costly not to, maybe not to you today, but certainly to your children, if you have any, or their children as well. Uh, there are other options, too. I, I don't believe that BC Hydro can, can't provide more power. BC Hydro is desperately trying to get people to install heat pumps left, right, and center. And in the Nanaimo policy, there was nothing mentioned about, uh, about you know, barbecue natural gas or propane natural gas. And again, the carbon pricing is, is insignificant based on the amount that the price of natural gas has actually dropped. We, have, we see larger swings in summer versus winter driving season changes than we do in terms of uh, uh, carbon pricing. Everyone likes to blame, blame the carbon tax. But the real issue here is supply and demand. That's the big cause of swings in, in fossil fuel. You don't have those swings in electricity. You can actually plan better 
your business because you have greater certainty on electricity prices than you do on, say, natural gas prices in many cases. We're running out of time here. I'm going to go to our next caller here, Josh in Vancouver. Hi, Josh. We don't got a lot of time, my friend. Sure. Not a climate change denier. Let me just tell you something, though. Here's what I and a lot of people probably don't agree with carbon tax for. One cargo ship can put out as much emissions as 20 million vehicles. That's a fact. That's not a fake number. So when we get, you know, electric vehicles and things like that driven down our throat, yet we ship all our stuff across seas with all these horrible polluters, we do nothing about them. That's the issue, I think. Josh, That's thank you. Like uh, all it, of the above. I agree. So what we've seen in the global shipping industry is we're starting to see a transition to, first of all, mm-hmm. they're re- reducing the amount of sulfur in the, in the bunker fuels that are being used uh, from environmental reasons. We're starting to see the emergence of electric uh, transportation, even in at sea. Notice BC Ferries just announced for purchasing four more uh, island-class v- vessels that are going to be electric power. They're doing that in, in lots of places in Europe. So it, it's about giving the, the thing about the carbon and I, maybe this is what, what the caller missed, is it actually by going up and sending a signal to the market that this is going to cost you more, so you better innovate now and find the solutions. And that's exactly what, how the shipping industry is responding. It's the same in the aviation industry as we start to see the emergence of more uh, uh, sustainable aviation fuel and R&D into other sources of powering planes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it actually incentivizes uh, innovation, and that's what creates change. And so it's uh, you know, the consumer may pay a little bit more, but, you know, you you can conserve a little bit more. Yeah. Andrew, uh, we've run out of time, my friend. I really appreciate your time. Always a pleasure. We're going to have you on yeah. again because it is an issue that comes up uh, over and over again. And I love having you on because there's lots of questions there. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Thanks again. Well, I'm not sure how to describe uh, our next segment. Um, it's got uh, marriage. It's got uh, finan- It's a financial relationship as well, not just a marital one, but it's also uh, it, it talks about our immigration authorities and how they handle cases like this, and including how money comes out of China as well. Uh, the the story itself uh, involves a Ying Zhen and a Rong. Gren He, uh, and it was a case that was um, uh, that was presented here in British Columbia. Joining me now to talk a little bit about it and just the broader implications and, and sort of the broader story it tells is John Green. He's a lawyer at John Michael Green Law Corporation. John, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Jeff. Hi. Well, uh, you tweeted about this case a few days ago, and, and I read it, and I wanted to have you on the show to talk a little bit about it. Walk me through some of the basic and our audience, some of the basics in regards to what happened. Yeah, so it, it, Justice Branch was the judge on this case, and uh, and he's, he's, he writes interesting decisions, and they're always well-researched. And, and he his background, he comes from uh, class action law, and he's dealt with financial frauds and things like that. And you can tell in this case, uh, what he when he was sitting in front, or he had these uh, two plaintiffs and defendant in front of him, he was just kind of in wonderment of uh, all the information that was coming out. What he had was uh, two people that were married, and essentially the breakdown of that marriage, and it was the discussion about how all these assets uh, ended up or, or were going to be divided up between the two of them, and really how uh, everything looked to be uh, fairly rigged uh, either uh, to help the one gentleman uh, come into Canada and essentially purchase assets here. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and so he he looked at, he looked at just the whole history of it and thought, you know, first thing it was, it was an interesting matchmaker in the case was an immigration consultant in Vancouver. And that was the person that put them together. Uh, And then, and then there was some property purchases and it's kind of timely with the, 
a lot of the discussion about the just the incredible pro- price of a property in Vancouver. But this one shows like she the the wife in this case uh, ends up looks like being handed a fairly large amount of money by this gentleman in China, and 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 she ends up going on and purchases the property for for the family and the two of them. And, and she's, she's on for 99%. He's on for 1% because at that point uh, there couldn't be foreign purchases of property that uh, rules were changed. And so it sort of just draws a, a picture of how people are trying to get around all this stuff now, uh, even though we've tried to put these rules in place and we're trying to, and, and this one didn't involve trust, but you know, we have the trust rules now and, and they don't seem to be really working very well either yet. So it's uh, it, this. This I think was a case that just kind of illustrates that it's happening. It's even though everybody seems to be saying that they're going to do things to try and fix fix the situation, it's just not so, happening. So in this case, it, it highlights once again that opaque transactions uh, are occurring, and people are buying up property in Vancouver, and it may be coming out of China or other places as well. That we still need to tighten our rules. And, and to my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong. The the income that they declared while they're in this country is about thirty five thousand dollars. Well, that's sort of the thing that I think Justice Branch looked at. It seemed really quite quite odd. You have people that are buying large assets and uh, multi million dollar assets that were declaring to the tax authorities in Canada that between the two of them about thirty grand a year uh, over the last three or four years. So it sort of falls into that. A few years ago, there was a, there were studies that were looking at these areas of Vancouver where people. Uh, where the tax people, the amount of taxes that people were paying in these very rich neighborhoods was virtually nothing. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of shows how this may be happening. Um, these people are just not not declaring anything, and or they have these foreign sources of income that's simply not being caught by anyone here in Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and in this case, I mean, you still need lawyers to help you. You still need immigration consultants to to help you. Uh, money that generally should be going into, you know, coming from banks as well. In regards to money's being money is being transferred, it is a reminder, as you say, that we've got to toughen up some of these rules. As much as we think we have, there's more to be done. Yeah, and well, and I think too, like Justice Branch, he didn't come out. He wasn't saying it in the decision, but you could see when these transactions were happening. Really, the questions that I was asking was: there were there had to have been lawyers involved, uh, there had to have been real estate agents involved, there had to have been banks involved potentially with some mortgages. They have an obligation, and, and it seems like the law society is even getting tougher and, and really ratcheting it up. They have the obligation basically to look at these transactions and ask where this money is coming from, and and if they're not doing it, uh, that's a problem. Um, and in this case. That you look at it, it seems like it probably there was some problems along the way there. So I think there's definitely there's got to be a lot more oversight, and somebody's got to start looking at this stuff. There's there's a lot there's quite a few decisions from our courts and the Supreme Court where the judges have been looking at the sort of weird family relationships, and they you can just tell it it was a marriage of convenience, uh, or there certainly it seems like a marriage of convenience and. Uh, the question is, is what are our immigration officials and what are our uh, tax authorities doing about it? I mean, I, th- I think you raise a very good point. I mean, we've spent so much time talking about um, the um, the last inquiry here in British Columbia with uh, uh, the casino in Richmond. But so much of money that is transferred or, or, or working its way through the system is through banking, which is federal. And 95% of the money, laundry money, would argue, comes through the banking system. Then you add in yep. lawyers, bankers, real estate agents, immigration consultants. The system is still very ripe. 
ripe for the picking because at the end of the day, the inquiry that we had looked at that particular issue uh, at a, in a provincial context. There wasn't that federal broader scope that was probably needed. It barely scratched the surface, that one. I mean, I watched a fair bit of it, and, and from, there were some really interesting days, but you could tell... Uh, you could tell that a lot of the time the people that were speaking to these issues, they really needed to have a lot more input from uh, FinTrack, for example, is the mm-hmm. one that, that deals with a lot of the banking transactions. And and I've had lawsuits and where, you know, we really it would be a good thing to be able to see what records were filed in relation to transactions with some of these uh, banks and some of these lenders. You know, they keep them secret. It's uh, There's a good argument that those tr- records should be easier to get uh, so that we can make sure that uh, banks, lenders, uh, real estate agents are actually doing what they're supposed to be doing. So mm-hmm. it, it doesn't really seem like it, it is, really is happening very well. I'm sure there's some exceptional companies that, that really are following the rules, but it's, in Vancouver, it seems like money and real estate really kind of keeps people doing what we've always been doing. I think that's why we pay attention to interest rates so much, including today, that's for sure. Oh, yeah, no kidding. eh? John, thanks for your time. Thanks, Jess. Have a good one. Let's revisit our top story. Now, as many of you have heard, uh, last week Nanaimo became the latest Canadian city to ban natural gas uh, in new construction. What it means for Nanaimo is that natural gas won't be allowed as a primary heating source in new homes and new buildings. Now, the motion passed in a 5-4 vote after what can be best described as a uh, best described as a contentious debate. Now, will we see more cities follow Nanaimo's lead? Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about that is Catherine Harrison. She is a political science professor at the University of British Columbia who studies climate policy. Catherine, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Well, first and foremost, your reaction to uh, the decision last week by Nanaimo City Council uh, to move forward uh, to uh, eventually ban natural gas as a primary heating source. Your thoughts? I I think it's a great move by Nanaimo, and we are seeing similar action by other cities in Canada and in the U.S. It's moved to the state level um, in New York State uh, being the, the big one. To fall, So I think it's an important thing because if we're going to meet our climate targets, we need to electrify space and water heating. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Nanaimo, a fast-growing city, Victoria, uh, Saanich, another one. Um, recently, uh, the city of Richmond um, uh, advocated for a much faster and more aggressive movement away from natural gas at the Metro Vancouver board level. Do you think this this can be replicated uh, at the Metro Vancouver board level, simply because, you know, you're talking about, you know, a region with two and a half million people, growing out about 100,000 people a, a year, representing 55% of the, uh, British Columbia's population. Can what's happening in Nanaimo and Victoria be replicated at a region-wide level in Metro Vancouver in your mind? I hope so. Um, and I think we have to try. Uh, there's there are certain things in in order to meet our greenhouse gas emission standards that are the low-hanging fruit, that are the first steps that need to be taken. And shifting from gas furnaces to electric heat pumps is one of them, but especially doing so for the new builds, new construction that is going to last for decades and lock in reliance on fossil fuels is the the very lowest hanging of the lowest hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. We did have uh, Fortis BC on our program yesterday. 
They, uh, as one would expect, were disappointed by what occurred in Nanaimo. Uh, the issue of renewable gas, natural gas that they tout, uh, do you buy it? No, I don't. Um, I mean, renewable gas exists. Um, I, I, I tend to distinguish between fossil gas and renewable gas. Mm-hmm. Um, but renewable gas exists, but it is not plausible that it will exist on the scale that we need to decarbonize our space and hot water heating. Mm-hmm. To the extent it is part of the path going forward, mm-hmm. sorry, we've got noise in the background here, um, to the extent it's part of the path going forward, um, the best use for that renewable gas is going to be in industrial applications, particular um, industrial needs where that fuel makes most sense where we've got cheaper alternatives is in um, home space and water heating. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, one of the uh, other issues um, that uh, I've certainly heard of in the last year or so, and perhaps as a commentary on our federal um, conversation that's occurring between uh, the government and, and the opposition, um, uh, and that has been around uh, climate change and the ability for citizens to deal with some of these changes. This natural gas announcement uh, from Nanaimo yesterday, we got a lot of calls, and one, as one would expect, uh, a lot of conversation around the fact that, uh, you know, uh, I am not going to give up my natural gas stove and, and many other things like that. Uh, the, the conversation I think many people are also having is, look, with carbon tax and with these kinds of changes that we're talking about here, do you think government may be moving a little too fast compared to what the public want to see, whether it be cost to a carbon tax or whether or not we're talking about banning natural gas. Do you think we potentially may be moving a little too fast on this? I really don't. Um, Whether that's what the public supports, I think, remains to be seen. I think one of the big challenges with climate change is that it is human nature to compare actions to the status quo. Um, A heat pump might initially cost me more money than a gas furnace. It's less familiar. I think over the life of it, it will actually be cheaper. But, you know, it it scares people at first and they think, well, I'm better off now. But we're not in that world anymore. We now face a choice between taking actions along with other jurisdictions to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions and move towards net zero or living in a much less safe world. And this summer, with the scale of wildfires 2021, with the, the extreme heat deaths, is just the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to get worse. And so we need to choose between pretty modest costs today or much worse costs. And I think that's, that's a choice most people don't realize we're in because it's just it's human nature to think, well, I'm doing okay right now and I'd like to stick with that. But mm-hmm. our kids won't be. And you're seeing that at the policy level beyond the examples I gave there. I know in New Westminster and a few other uh, city councils have talked about making uh, landlords responsible for providing cooling just as they're responsible for providing heating, especially in the summer months. And it it was voted down at the lower mainland um, government's association uh, meeting. But um, one assumes that will once again be brought forward uh, because it is an issue that is uh, clear and present at the moment. In the broader conversation, do you think the will is there for government to continue to to bring these kinds of changes forward? Because 
uh, when I hear from my, my listeners, and I hear from any other other shows that I listen to, there is pushback as well to this, that you're moving too quickly. Carbon tax is just one thing, but we're moving way too quickly compared to other nations that should be taking up uh, perhaps uh, a heavier load, China's, the India's, the United States, and parts of Europe as well. Mm-hmm. Um, well, <laughs> China's emissions per person are about half or less than half of Canada's. Mm-hmm. Canada's historical emissions per person are the highest in the world. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it is absolutely the case that the big economies like China and India need to be taking action too. And and that's one of the things the Paris Agreement did that was different than the Kyoto Protocol. It brought the developing countries in, but it's also totally understandable for them to say, we're not going to impose extreme costs on our residents, many of whom don't even have electricity, unless we see some goodwill actions from the wealthy countries that cause this problem. And, you know, 30 years ago, we could say, gee, we didn't know. But since 1990, we have known that we've been contributing to this problem in a disproportionate way. So I think unless countries like Canada, the U.S., the European Union, Australian, show that we're serious about taking action, we're kidding ourselves if we think low-income countries with much lower emissions which are more vulnerable to the mm-hmm. harms that we've caused, are going to fix the problem. Uh, just a couple more questions. So if we do electrify, if we move away from natural gas, which means we will rely mm-hmm. greater, greater, greater need for electricity, Site C is one issue uh, that we've debated yeah. for a very long time. We did move forward with it uh, tremendously over budget, but it's there, and I think it's supposed to power 450,000 homes and greater need for EVs and all that sort of thing. Where would this future power come from? Because to replace natural gas, it'd be significant amount of need for more uh, uh, electricity. Replacing oil and coal, significant need for more electricity. Mm-hmm. Would we need to somewhere along the way start looking at nuclear as well? Because we, there's only so many hydroelectric dams you can build, and they're difficult enough as it is because of the broad public policy and environmental implications when we do build them. We see that with Site C. Where does this future power come from, and what is that future power? Yeah, um, we are the um, the Canadian Climate Institute, which is a, a think tank, mm-hmm. um, Canada's leading climate policy think tank, uh, did a series of big reports last year about our, our clean electricity needs as a country and also had some... Um, you know, provincial uh, stories. And basically across the country, we're going to need to at least double um, in some jurisdictions, triple our clean electricity capacity. Um, That's going to come partly from hydro, things like run of river hydro, but it's also going to increasingly come from solar and wind, things we haven't invested in very much yet in British Columbia because we've had abundant clean electricity. So I think that's what will be coming next. Um, And we're going to have to invest in that. I think there's some good questions whether the best use of our clean electricity is um, powering fossil fuel production and export, which is what Site C is going to be used for disproportionately to, um, to, you know, expand exports of natural gas in the form of LNG. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, we're absolutely going to need more clean electricity. Um, But that's, as I see it, we just don't have a choice. <laughs> mm-hmm. Either we go down this path that is a pretty horrific one for humankind, or mm-hmm. we start planning far in advance, 
thinking about what needs to be done, getting the permitting done in partnership and certainly consultation with First Nation. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one other thought I would make on the, the space heating is the thing about heat pumps is that they also provide cooling. So they're this kind of rare policy that is both a climate mitigation policy, but also um, an adaptation policy. It can save lives um, in the short term because it can provide very um, highly efficient cooling. And But that's going to use electricity too. Well, it is going to, a lot of big policy decisions moving forward. I mean, you do talk about the, the challenge before us, and part of it is just finding the right policy solution and the type of energy we'll need as well. Lots to talk about, uh, that's for sure, on this issue. Ms. Harrison, thank you so much for your time today. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.